from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. If a tree falls in a forest and nobody is around to hear it, does it even make a sound? Well, yes and no. The fall will cause the air to vibrate and create a sound wave, but what we tend to refer to as sound is something that happens in the brain. If nobody is there to listen when a tree falls, the sound waves it makes are only vibrations in the air. So the way that we interpret anything, including sound, varies from person to person. That's what we'll learn about on today's special edition of the show. Producer Avery Rogers will take us on a journey that explores the different ways we hear and why the world isn't built for hearing accessibility. We'll also hear how one St. Louisan with hearing difficulties navigates life and even listen to what her hearing experience might sound like. Since this show is largely about accessibility, we have an American Sign Language interpretation of this piece. You can see that video and more about the story you're about to hear on our website at stlpr.org hearing. Here's producer Avery Rogers. While our brains have similar ways of processing sensory information, such as waves of light or sound, our perceptions are very different. Andrew Hugel calls this aural diversity. He is a composer, performer, and professor of creative computing and music at Goldsmiths University in London. He also co-founded the Aural Diversity Project, in part as a way to understand more about himself and why he perceives the world the way he does. In 2007, I was diagnosed with Meniere's disease, which is a balance disorder that also affects your hearing. I had a pretty severe case of it, and uh, so it got to the point where I could barely walk. And then I had some treatment on the inner ear, which was fairly violent chemical injection, which uh, destroyed my balance function. So that relieved the vertigo. Professor Hugel's hearing changed dramatically after that treatment. He now has tinnitus, which he describes as a permanent whooshing sound in his ears, as well as severe hearing loss in both ears, with one ear worse than the other. He also has a peculiar condition called diplocusis. That's where you hear two different pitches between the two ears. You know, you play a note on a piano. And I hear two different notes, one of which is out of tune with the other. Each note has a duration. And that duration involves the interplay of these detunings. For a musician, this is very disturbing. All the things that I really valued, like music, I wasn't able to listen to it anymore. To say you've got something wrong with your hearing, it can be very professionally damaging. So I actually kept it a secret for the best part of a decade. So it would have been easy to kind of give up, really. But I was determined to make it into a positive thing somehow. And it dawned on me one day that I could actually replicate this. What I tried to do then was to build a digital instrument that reproduced this experience. 
Professor Hugel calls it the Diplocusis piano. He wrote this song, Addled Mystic, for it. You can hear how the detuned notes clash with one another, and how the dissonance builds upon itself over time. He performed Adult Mystic and other Diplocusis piano compositions at an Aural Diversity Project concert. Aural Diversity is, is really a very simple idea on one level, and that is that everybody hears differently. Now, you, you, you would think that this would be a very simple and obvious thing, but actually when you come to look at all our fields and disciplines that relate to hearing in some way, what you find is that none of them seem to think about this. They all accept the idea of a, a sort of perfectly balanced pair of ears that everybody shares the same hearing experience. Uh, and so, you know, when you think about the way uh, acoustics works, the way design happens, um, architecture, uh, technology, you name it, that they all seem to be founded on this sort of tacit assumption that everybody hears the same way. The All Diversity Project, based out of the UK, is a network of researchers and artists who explore hearing differences in humans and the consequences these differences have in our society. Anybody who's autistic, and I'm autistic as well, um, will be familiar with the phrase neurotypical, which is the idea that there's a common or a sort of dominant neurological type. And then if you're autistic, you would be neurodivergent or neuroatypical, some people say. And, and the whole field is neurodiversity. Aural diversity is really the same thing. It's just taking the concept of uh, aurality, hearing, and making the point that there's many different ways of hearing. Despite there being such diversity in how we perceive the world, society has been designed to cater auditorily to a select few, says Travis Threats. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences at St. Louis University. We have a problem in this country with normal. And somewhere, people decided that people in their 20s are normal. Uh, so <laughs> that becomes the standard, and that's not a good thing. The International Standards Organization defines people with quote-unquote normal hearing to be between the ages of 18 and 25 with no hearing difficulties. According to Professor Hugel, that means only 17% of the population has normal hearing. Many industries use these standards to determine how things are made. Music and performance industries use them to build equipment, concert venues, speakers, and more. Architects use them to design their spaces. So first, let's start off with, let's that's, that's, uh, get rid of, it, 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 25 is somehow the ultimate of life. But, <laughs> but anyway, I say that only because it's not good for anyone. Classrooms that have too much reverberation are not good for any of the children's learning. And some school districts have put in something soft on the walls, things that keep that, that echoing from happening, and they, they find that uh, test scores and reading scores go up. Hospitals are very loud, uh, intrusive environments, especially considering that people are giving you advice on your medications in the emergency room. Another problem, Professor Threat says, is that we add a lot of noise to our environments, which contributes to hearing loss. 
people in their 20s are starting showing hearing loss because uh, they're playing this music so loud in their ears. But part of even that is they're around such loud sounds. So that's why they're turning the music up, because we live in such a noisy, challenging environment, more so than has usually been in the history of mankind. Although the world is not built for the 83% of people who don't live with perfect hearing, Professor Threat says there's a growing movement around accessibility. It's part of universal design. Let's make everything easier for everyone. So bus schedules that are in too small a print are harder for older people to use, even though they're the most likely to need public transportation because they're no longer driving. But those things, even when you have normal vision, are hard to read. It's hard to figure out the bus schedule, okay? It's hard for everybody. That's my point. So many things are hard for everybody, and we should just try to make things better, not just for this group of people who have disabilities, but those changes turn out to be better for everybody. When people understand how they hear the world, they can better communicate their needs and accommodate the needs of others. And hearing, Professor Threads adds, is such a personal experience because sound happens in the brain. Hearing varies because our brains vary. Even people with so-called normal hearing, we are still not perceiving things the same way. People have a different preferences in music. It's probably actually coming into their brain differently, which is why some music that is very enjoyable is almost painful to other people. You know, they say, I don't know how anyone can listen to that. That's because, again, it's attached to a brain. It's attached to our, our structure. This also means there are ways in which people's hearing can be enhanced, for better or for worse. Each of us has different strengths in our hearing on the things that we can pick up. So a person who might be tone deaf, as in music-wise, can't tell when things are out of tone, could also be somebody who can pick up subtleties in somebody's voice. A good therapist can hear hesitation in somebody's voice that another person can't hear. Okay, So we need to not just think about pathology. It's not an all or none thing. Either you have good hearing or you have bad hearing. It is common for autistic people to be more sensitive to certain stimuli, and this often includes sound. Professor Hugel says that many aspects of his hearing are enhanced because he is autistic. I'm one of these people, I mean, there are many of us now, who have been diagnosed autistic very late in life. I was diagnosed age 60. And uh, so you look back and you think, oh, now a lot of things make sense to me now. You know, I understand why it was that way. And when it comes to hearing, I always had uh, a kind of autistic ability to listen to detail that other people missed, I think. So I'd like hear electricity and uh, lighting. I used to sit with my head in fridges and try and notate the sounds that I heard in the fridge. Uh, And I'd also sit by the edge of roads, busy roads, and try and notate the, uh, the sound of the traffic. So uh, it's only later in life that I began to realise that actually nobody was hearing what I was hearing, you know. And now I find myself looking back rather fondly on this and thinking, well, actually, you know, had I realised what I know now about aural diversity then, I would have been much more interested in these phenomena and trying to understand what was going on. But of course, 
you know, you didn't do that in those days. I mean, um, autism was, was very unusual in, in, when I was growing up. It's now much better understood, I think, although we've still got a long way to go. But I think people now understand that there are these differences. And they're sensory, but it's to do with brain processing as well. Sometimes enhanced hearing can be really useful. But other times, like with misophonia, it can be extremely upsetting. Misophonia is a neuropsychological condition that is best known as an auditory aversion, but it also frequently has visual elements. It is a legitimate disorder that is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. That is Chris Edwards. He founded So Quiet, a nonprofit in St. Louis that helps people who are affected by misophonia, which is a sensory condition that causes involuntary, often very uncomfortable sensations in reaction to certain stimuli. Usually sounds, but sometimes visual stimuli as well. Some common misophonia triggers are the sound of chewing or slurping. Some less common triggers include the sounds of footsteps, the motion of someone else fidgeting, or even the way someone holds a spoon. The triggering stimuli, as well as their accompanying sensations, are different for everyone and can cause extreme emotional and mental distress for the person experiencing it. For some people, certain triggers can even cause physical pain. Understandably, Chris says misophonia can be extremely hard to manage. I could be at the grocery store and then there's somebody two aisles away who's popping their gum and as soon as they start doing that, I get this, it's a weird combination of a panic with an element of anger and a need to just leave, to get away from that sound immediately. There's times when I just can't be around another person because of something they're doing. And it's not that I want to or don't want to, uh, it's just that I can't. It's affected friendships, it's affected professional relationships. I've walked out of jobs. I walked out one day and didn't go back because of a misophonia trigger that was just too much for me. And it doesn't make sense. There's nothing threatening about those sounds but it, our brains are misinterpreting it. It is a complicated condition that is hard to understand, even for people who have it. And that can make it really hard for people to talk about it with others. We sometimes have to ask people to not do something um, if they want us to be around. And so that's a lot to ask. It sounds crazy if you tell somebody, I can't listen to that sound. It is driving me crazy. And everybody else is like, what? I don't even hear it. You know, um, it sounds crazy. But I think there's a meeting in the middle. I've had to realize that there's just a lot of things I can't change. But there, there's a meeting in the middle somewhere. And we understand it's not easy to you know, wrap your head around what we were experiencing and how it affects us. But just to accept that when what somebody says about their personal experience, even if you can't relate to it, just accept it as, as factual that they're experiencing the world differently. That was Chris Edwards, who founded the group So Quiet, talking with producer Avery Rogers. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation about oral diversity and explore a new technology that simulates hearing loss. And later, producer Avery Rogers uses the simulator to share the story of how one St. Louisan hears. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.
Welcome back to this special edition of St. Louis on the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. We just learned about oral diversity, the different ways people hear, and how hearing loss is only one of many ways people hear. For more on oral diversity, producer Avery Rogers. When it comes to hearing and perception, the expression correlation does not equal causation is particularly relevant. People often have simultaneous hearing conditions, but that does not mean they cause one another. A common example is that hearing loss often co-occurs with tinnitus, the permanent noise in the ears. But hearing loss and tinnitus can exist independently. According to the Cleveland Clinic, tinnitus affects about 50 million people in the United States. Some people describe it as a constant whooshing sound in their ears, like hearing the ocean but way more annoying. Other people experience more of a high-pitched ringing in their ears, and it can change over time. For some people, it even goes away. Sometimes it comes up randomly, and other times there is a clear cause, like certain medications. Cheryl Williams of O'Fallon in North St. Louis did not have hearing loss when she first developed tinnitus. I had a history of having the tinnitus in one ear or the other. That was during college, and it would be higher pitched or clearly discernible in one ear, but not the other. And I kind of just realized that that was a way my body was responding to the stress. And after finals, I was good. (laughs) So it took me a long, long time to realize that the constant sound in my head and my brain was not normal. I did not realize it until one day I was having a conversation with my husband and I said, do you hear that? He said, what? And I explained what the sound is to me. And it's a constant. As he said, no, I don't hear that. Decades after she first noticed her tinnitus in college, Cheryl was diagnosed with hearing loss that includes sensitivity to certain sounds. It turned out to be with the kind of hearing loss that I have, women's voices is where my hearing loss is and has remained. I eventually got hearing aids in 2008 and found out what I had been missing. It sounds as though to me that sounds are louder than they actually are. So when I am hearing a dog barking in the background of a phone call or even an ambulance or fire truck siren, I can perceive that as being right out my door because it sounds that close. And I can hear that sound better than the speech of the person on the phone. While doctors don't always know what causes tinnitus, they can occasionally pinpoint the cause or at least the kind of hearing loss someone has. Professor Travis Threats of the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences at St. Louis University says exposure to loud noises is a common cause of hearing loss. There's hair cells in your ear. And every time you hear a sound, the hair cells move up and down in a kind of fluid. If something's very loud, it slams the hair cell down. Think about a carpet. If you stample on carpet over and over again on one given path, that path is going to be worn down. If you go on grass and everybody doesn't go on the sidewalks but walks down that, the grass gets worn down. That's what's mechanically happening to your ear over time with noise. And that's 
that's a cause of hearing loss. And it, it'll be specific. So if you're listening to music, it's going to be the frequencies that you are listening at that are going to be damaged. It won't damage the hearing necessarily equally, but on the type of sound that you're hearing. Similar to Cheryl, St. Louis resident Stephanie Gurley Thomas has tinnitus and hearing loss. The cause of that loss, however, remains a mystery. My situation is not typical. It is very atypical. I do wear a hearing aid in my left ear, and I wear a cochlear implant in my right ear. Stephanie was diagnosed with asymmetrical hearing loss, which means that one side is worse than the other. It started in her 20s. When I was 15, I had a staph infection in my ankle, uh, but we didn't know what it was at the time. And so we ended up having an autotoxic drug to clean it out. It's uh, gentamicin. And autotoxic just means it's, it's poisonous to your ear, basically. Stephanie's hearing loss might have been caused by the drug, she says, but it is also possible that her genetics played a part, too. As her hearing loss worsened, her audiologist suggested getting a cochlear implant. Whereas a hearing aid amplifies sound and plays it through a tiny speaker by your ear, a cochlear implant directly stimulates the auditory nerve so it can send sound signals to your brain. Electrodes are surgically inserted into your cochlea and receive signals from a receiver transmitter that is implanted under your skin. The receiver gets input from a sound processor that is placed behind your ear. Until this point, Stephanie had only used hearing aids, so this was a drastic change and she wasn't so sure about it. You know, I had a lot of concerns about it, of course, like anyone would when they're messing with your head and your ears and so forth. But something Stephanie's audiologist said encouraged her to get the cochlear implant anyway. She said, Stephanie, at the end of the day, you are more tired and more exhausted than anybody else because of how hard you have to work to listen. And that really struck me because I, I do. When you have hearing loss, you... You're not writing out a grocery list and listening to your husband. You aren't finishing up a quick email while you have a colleague trying to talk to you. Actively listening is stopping what you're doing and focusing your full attention on that person and what they're saying. It's not just the sound. It's everything. The light, how, you know, how bright the light is, how well I can see your lips, the, the sounds that are coming in, the sounds that are in the background, the, every gesture you make, every facial expression you make, it all is part of that. And how do you measure that? That's, that's very difficult. Stephanie says that it was hard to come to terms with her hearing loss, but eventually she had to accept that she would never really understand why it happened. And since it happened gradually and started early, a lot of people in her life did not realize what she was experiencing and were insensitive about it. I did a semester in London f during college, and my friends jokingly called me Daphne. So I definitely know there was um, something going on at that point. And uh, yes, I saw your face when I said that. You get used to it um, to a degree, to a degree. I don't know how many deaf jokes I've heard over my lifetime. A lot of people, they know you can't hear, and then they'll say, what? And they think that's funny. But in my head, they say, oh, what? And then I have to think, wait, why are they saying what? And then I, it takes me a minute to realize they're making a joke, but they don't realize that in my head, I'm having to think, wait, did I miss something? Hang on. This, let, me, let me try to reprogram what just happened and figure it out. Stephanie says her diagnosis was a huge relief because so many things in her life, including why she was being made fun of, started to make sense. 
It was not in my head. I was not doing anything wrong. I was not flighty and not paying attention. There was a name for what was happening, and it was hearing loss, and it was real. And one of the first things I did was call an ex-boyfriend and say, ha, it's not selective hearing, because that's what he always used to say. He would say, well, when I say something to you, you pause and then you get it. Well, it's context. I get some things. I just don't get everything. With my loss, I have loss with the soft consonants, which would be like sh. C-H-T-H, that sort of thing. So I can pick up what you're saying, but it takes me a minute to catch on. And if we're talking or especially in a group situation, you've already moved on by the time I get what you said, if I get what you said. There's nothing more (laughs) annoying to someone with hearing loss when you say, excuse me or pardon me or what, and somebody else comes back with, oh, never mind. It's dismissive that what they said isn't important enough. You you aren't important enough to hear it again. It's not intended. We understand that. But then then you immediately feel left out of the conversation. And it happens all the time. Stephanie appreciates that her close friends and family make the extra effort to ensure she's comfortable, especially in a social situation. Stephanie's friends get her input before they make plans to go out in case something about the building might make her hearing experience more difficult, like if the restaurant has high ceilings. Her husband asks her to pick her seat around the table first so that she can get the best advantages for her hearing. They intentionally create space for Stephanie to voice her needs, and then they do what they can to meet those needs. They don't assume they know what her needs are. Some people are just you know, so helpful about it, but then some aren't. It's it's interesting. They They think you do okay. They think, but she can hear in this situation. Why can't she hear in that? And that's, again, because hearing loss isn't just, I've lost X, Y, Z. It's, I've lost X at this level, but Z at this level, and this other ear does that. And, you know, it's it's very nuanced. It's complicated. Nobody with hearing loss can put a device on and hear what you hear, ever. That just doesn't exist. It's not like glasses that are corrective. Nothing corrects your hearing loss. Hearing aids can only help so much. Stephanie also doesn't get the full benefit of her cochlear implant, and that too is a mystery to her audiologists. But still, Stephanie says that the devices have changed her life for the better. She says it is really important to go see someone right away if you notice a change in your hearing, because the earlier you can get help, usually the better your treatment will work. And the earlier you start using the accessibility tools you need, your hearing experience could become less stressful much sooner. Tools to help people hear better are more widely available than ever before, and they come from a broad array of fields. Many researchers involved with the Aural Diversity Project use their expertise to develop innovative solutions, like Angeliki Morgella, an audio engineer and doctoral student at Queen Mary University in the UK. She's working on a program to help audio producers make modified versions of their content specifically for people with hearing loss. If we are able to provide additional content, it would be much, much easier for the viewer to select whether they want the enhanced version or the the version that's available for the general public. Even if it means that it's not entirely personalized, I think it would be much more accessible than um, having that responsibility on on the viewer to buy the equipment or to modify their listening setup um, and so on. Angeliki's goal is to create a tool that automates the whole process so that it's easy for audio producers, such as music producers and podcasters, 
to make their audio more widely available to consumers. To do that, she says there needs to be some sort of reference material because if audio producers are to make versions of their audio for people with hearing loss, how are they supposed to know what works and what doesn't? How would they know if the version for people with hearing loss actually does more closely resemble the original version? Her solution was to first build an audio plugin of a hearing loss simulator. We wanted engineers, first of all, to get the awareness of how their content would sound to somebody that had hearing loss or what difficulties would present and what they could do to counteract those difficulties. And then we wanted it to be something very easily um, kind of shared with the public so that everyone can try it and um, hear for themselves. The simulation, in a sense, it, we can't really say if it's accurately replicating hearing loss because just like normal hearing, hearing loss can vary as well. Um, not one person will have the same hearing loss as the other person, even if they, their measurements present to be exactly the same. When Stephanie learned about Angeliki's work, she said she was curious how well the simulator could demonstrate her difficulty hearing. Because if I can help anybody advocate for themselves in a stronger way or help them decide to go get a hearing test or help them decide to get their in-law or mother or child a hearing test, that's what I want. Using Angeliki's plugin, as well as some sound design choices, here are some examples of what Stephanie might hear in different settings and situations. You know, I love, I love the music from the 80s. I've always wondered how much of music I'm actually hearing. A long time ago, I would get the cassette tape out and I would pull out the insert and read the lyrics. That's how I would get into the music. I always hear the beat, but I did not hear cymbals, some snare, things like that. I have good hearing in my lows, and then it quickly tapers off. The volume is decreased, for sure, in both ears. I've actually lost some of the frequencies that are at the high end altogether. They can't be replicated. But that's just a part of creating my whole hearing experience. It's hard to know what you're missing when you never knew you were missing it. to believe I had early onset tinnitus because I'm rather type A and I think I would have lost my mind. What I hear right now is, let me think, so I have a constant high pitch ring. It's just a constant one note. Then there are random beeps and chirps under that that have no rhyme or reason. And then another 
sort of layered of beeping and ringing. It's very hard to explain. When I was younger, I remember people would talk about, we. my family had a place at the lake. Cicadas would come out every seven or 13 years, and I'm always like, well, I hear cicadas all the time. So I don't, you know, maybe they're wrong or what, you know, I, I, I didn't put two and two together that, you know, when I'm at the lake and hearing the cicadas, why am I also hearing them back home and at my family's house, uh, you know, in town, in the bathroom? Something's, you know, not making sense there. So I think it's always been there. And it is frustrating because it's never quiet. Cochlears work really well with people who had hearing and then lost it because the brain will remember. The coil stimulates those nerves, and then they can hear again. But sometimes it takes a while for it to sound natural. So we kept thinking that mine would become natural sounding, and it just never did. You know, I, I heard birds again after I got mine. They don't sound right. <laughs> they sound a little um, tinny, like old-time radio, like tinny. I'm right here with you one-on-one. -on -one. There's, we can't hear anything else. I'm having no trouble hearing you. Whenever you have a group of people and any kind of background noise, it's kind of a game over situation. With or without my hearing devices on, it often sounds like they're mumbling. Like they're just not speaking crisply. They're not enunciating. They're just kind of talking a little bit like this. I imagine it sounds like, you know, maybe a partially a person who's been drinking a little bit or something like that. It's just not crisp. And if they are a natural mumbler, whew, you know, that's, that's a hard one. It's not just that when you look at my audiogram, it shows I have, I hear 38% in one ear. What am I hearing? What is that 38% that I'm catching? And nobody really knows. So it's, it's greater than just getting a hearing test and getting a device. I think at the end of the day, you cannot replicate it. It's different for everybody. I think teaching people that it's different, just that piece is important. Stephanie says that hearing differences can affect the choices and trajectory of your career. It can put strain on relationships with families and friends. It can change personalities. People withdraw from many situations because of the anxiety they feel with asking for help or accommodations. So not only do they not get the help they want and need, but their social experience and mental health is severely affected. So ask yourself, what is my hearing experience like? How would I describe it? How would I visualize it? How can I appreciate it? How has it changed over time? And ask these questions not to diagnose or pathologize yourself, but to appreciate this aspect of who you are, to more deeply understand the lens through which you perceive the world, to contemplate this part of your human experience because it is unique. So next time someone with hearing loss asks you to repeat yourself, respond with compassion and curiosity. 
Face them when you speak so that they can read your lips. Ask your friends and family if there is something you can do to make their experience less difficult. Cultivate an environment around you where people's experiences are understood to be inherently valid, no matter your preconception of what should or should not be true, no matter what your idea of normal is. Our thanks to producer Avery Rogers for that story. And as a reminder, we have an ASL interpretation of the story. It's on our website at stlpr.org hearing. When we come back, we'll talk with Avery and hear from Stephanie Gurley-Thomas. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Cha. We've been talking today about oral diversity the different ways we experience sound. We just heard Avery Rogers' feature about oral diversity, and it ended with us learning about the hearing experience of St. Louis resident Stephanie Gurley-Thomas. With us in studio to share more, we have Stephanie and producer Avery Rogers. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. Hey, Avery. So, Stephanie, we learned so much about you in the feature, and we even got to hear an example of what your hearing experience might be like. What did you think of the example of your hearing experience? Do you think Avery got pretty close? You know, it's hard to say because I couldn't hear some of it, Um, but that leads me to believe that it probably was close, yes, especially when you add in the noise, when I t- do a hearing test, that's part of the test is they give background noise and you have to repeat sentences and words to see what you're catching. So it's not just can you hear the word Bob in a soundproof booth. It's can you hear the word Bob when there's like restaurant noise all around you. So what was it like working with Avery on that part of the piece? Well, it, Avery's great. <laughs> She's uh, been so passionate about this and so um flexible with me and then just trying to understand what it's like to hear in my world. And as I said in the piece, nobody really knows. I don't know what she hears. She doesn't know what I hear. I don't know what you hear. But she tried as hard as she could to understand that. And part of that is just trying to understand. When people try to understand, they become empathetic and, you know, just makes the world a kinder place, Mm -hmm. makes it easier for people like me or, you know, in other disabilities. So in in terms of that experience of how she was doing the, the recording and kind of leading you through, what was it like to hear what came out of that just now? 
Well, it was a little difficult to hear my own voice just because nobody likes their own voice, I think, right off the bat. Um, but I really liked how she put it all together as far as really – we talked for hours. And so, you know, cutting it down like that and trying to really make um, an impact on two, two others about how I hear and what things I hear and just – you know, how it's been for me and so forth. Um, I thought she did a great job of that. And and I do also want to say it's just one piece of who I am. However, as she said, it does affect everything. Relationships mm-hmm. work, um, crossing the street, you know, everything. Sure. Now, something we didn't get to hear about in the feature is just how unique your hearing experience is with regard to the cochlear implant that yes. you have now. Can you talk a bit about that implant and why it's so unique? I was the first person in this region to get this specific type of cochlear implant. It was for people who have good low tones, so they're in the normal range. Mm-hmm. So when you when the cochlear implant coils into your cochlea, it basically destroys the hearing as you go. I mean, it will help you hear because it's stimulating the nerve and so forth, but um, whatever hearing you had left in those levels, it destroys. The lower tones are in the very center of the cochlea, so they just don't insert it as far. Mm -hmm. And so it takes people some time to get used to the sounds. So when I was activated, when they activated the device a couple of weeks after the surgery, I... I was not the kind of person that was going from not hearing anything to suddenly hearing. You mm-hmm. see the videos of the babies who hear their mom's voice for the first time or something like that. It wasn't like that for me. And um, prior to the surgery, they do an MRI to see how your if your auditory nerve is healthy. And um, after a lot of trial and error, we kind of think that possibly I had auditory nerve damage and it just doesn't show up. So I don't get the full benefits. There's several channels along the coil and I just can't have some of them on because it just sounds screechy mm-hmm. to me and like painfully screechy. And how old were you when you got the implant? Um, I think it was 2012. So that would have made me younger. Um <laughs> think. I think that was about 10 years ago. So that made me 37, maybe. Okay. I think. And part of the reason I ask is that yeah. that means that you are fully living a an adult life yes. with all of the things that go along with that. Yes. So having to make those um, physical adjustments yes. and things that other people just don't have any sense of um, of like what you're experiencing. Well, my, my son was one and a half at the time, I think one and a half, almost two. And I, you know, I'm not catching first words. I'm not catching words at all. Sometimes my, my daughter was five or six at the time. And my mom came in town to visit one time. And apparently she'd been saying um, a no, no word. (laughs) And I did not hear it. And my mom's like, Stephanie, she's saying this. And I'm like, is she? Huh? And I, of course, my first question was, is she using it correctly? You know, (laughs) and she was. But um, yeah, so I missed some of those things that aren't awesome to miss. Uh, But but also the worry, will I hear my son at night, Um, you know, through the monitor or just 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 different things like that. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned that it affects your relationships. So how has your hearing loss affected your relationships with family and friends? That's a good question. I think um, 
specifically, I know who of my friends will, or who of my acquaintances, who in my social circle will be empathetic and take the time to figure out what's best for me, and others who either just don't get it or, you know, they just don't understand or don't want to understand. There is that part of it where it starts to feel like I've said this so many times, you just not want to understand. Mm -hmm. And then there's people, I was in the piece that said, um, you know, a friend of mine asked me, can you go look at this restaurant, the pictures, is this going to be a place that's good for you? I think the ceilings might be too high. And I teared up because that kind of, um, you know, that kind of kindness and again, empathy, it's just it just is so nice to have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do have some family members that joke around and say the what, what all the time. And, and, and they, they have no idea what it means to me to have to try to catch up. And what are they saying? What, why did they say what? I don't understand. Did I miss something? And, you know, how much, how hard I have to work to do that. Um, so and, you know, even still, my kids and my son, my husband get frustrated when I say what a hundred times. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Well, and hopefully this is the kind of piece that opens people's ears so I differently. Hope so. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. We're here with Stephanie Gurley Thomas and producer Avery Rogers continuing the conversation about oral diversity. So Avery, you are the person behind this feature. Do you happen to have any oral diversities yourself? Yeah, I do. Um, so I have pretty bad tinnitus um, and I have misophonia that goes back to my childhood. So I'm pretty sure that's kind of why I'm like, yeah, this is definitely a neuropsychological condition. I'm not making this up. This is something I've dealt with my whole life. Mm -hmm. And how was it for you to make that example of Stephanie's hearing loss that we heard at the end of the piece? It was really fun. Um, not gonna lie, it was really, really fun because I got to explore different sounds and I got to explore the depth of, of things and take what Stephanie was telling me and try and translate that to two sounds, which was pretty hard, but it was a lot of fun. I will say that the tinnitus part was incredibly difficult for me, seeing I have pretty bad tinnitus. So making the tinnitus part was actually very painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and most of the time when I listen to it back, um, I kind of can't listen to it. I needed I needed some help with those levels because I just it was just painful to me. It was also really interesting to look at the script for that part and how different that looked. So that was really neat to experience on, on that end of things. What does your family think about this piece, especially if they've known you since you were young? and have struggled with some of these things that, I don't know, perhaps you were not able to articulate when you were a child? Um, I think that they probably would feel like they would, they might laugh a little bit and be like, ah, okay, yeah, no, that makes sense, um, especially when it comes to the misophonia stuff. Um, I think specifically, though, for my dad, my dad has hearing loss and tinnitus, um, and I think that hopefully it will make him feel a little bit more seen. Um, and hopefully it will help him, you know, get his hearing tested and take care of that part of himself. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the final question, you've been doing this here in St. Louis. What have you learned about the community of people who have these um, oral diversities and how they support one another you know, in this region? 
I have been like incredibly not surprised, but excited by the amount of just the sheer number of like nonprofits that exist in St. Louis for hearing differences and hearing difficulties in general. There are so many that are local and it's hard to find some of them. It was pretty challenging because I but I was like there, there has to be somebody here who who does something with misophonia or you know whatever and of course I have to say like this is a non-exhaustive piece. There is so many more oral diversities that exist. This is not a list of all of the ones that are possible. Um, and so I think that that probably means that there are, well, that definitely means that there are way more communities in St. Louis, way more like nonprofits and smaller groups of people and larger groups of people who are there to support each other and help each other. And um, the the fact that there were so many people who came forward to say like, hey, I want to be part of this because I want to help other people who may have some, uh, who may relate to this experience. That was, that was awesome. There were so, we got so many emails about people wanting to help other people. Um, and so that was just maybe my favorite part. Clearly more to explore. Avery Rogers produced our story on oral diversity and St. Louis resident Stephanie Gurley Thomas was featured in the piece. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. As a reminder, since today's show is largely about accessibility, we've made this piece of journalism more accessible. We produced an American Sign Language interpretation of the story, and there's a full transcript. Visit stlpr.org slash hearing to check those out. This episode was produced by Avery Rogers. Podcast designed by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.